Hello and welcome to a special 55-1 podcast. My name is Wes Burdine and I am very pleased to bring you this episode uh, with, uh, you know, one of, one of I think, the, the most interesting people in U.S. soccer, uh, Peter Wilt, uh, who is the, you know, head of NISA, this uh, um, lower division league that is going to be starting up maybe this year, maybe next year, probably this year. Um, and then as well, Kim Arnone from Cutting Edge Capital. Uh, the two of them have come up with this uh, pretty cool idea. Well, it's not a new idea, but they've come up with a, a, a plan that, that can be implemented across the lower divisions. And that is um, having actual fan ownership that that is, um, you know, real and tangible. And that resembles a little bit about what we see in, you know, Germany and, and uh, Spain, throughout Europe and, and throughout the world. Um and I, I think that it has not gotten enough attention. It's it's kind of, you know, they put out a press release on Saturday and uh, there's been so much crazy happening in the world of soccer that um, I don't think, uh, I don't think enough has been uh, said about what really is being proposed here. And, and this is looking at these um, lower division teams uh, and trying to find a way that uh, fans can have tangible ownership in them. Um Obviously, there are uh, pitfalls to that, right? Uh, we talk about that in this interview, and um, I think that uh, I think we we all know the the problems with uh, ownership and needing deep pockets to sustain all the losses. Um, but you know, this is at least a model that we can start moving forward to uh, and start implementing in places, especially where NPSL seems to be doing well, or or places like Chattanooga, as we talk about on this podcast, I'm sure Detroit is part of this conversation, right? Um, so, uh, you know, this, this is a special podcast from 55.1. You know, as always, um, if you like what you hear and you want to support what happens here, uh, please go to our Patreon uh, uh, page. It's at the bottom of every post. And support us for a dollar, four dollars, five dollars, or ten dollars a month. Um, it goes a long way. Uh, we have about ninety or so patrons right now. I would love to see that go over a hundred, and um, the amount doesn't really matter as long as we're kind of getting this broad base of support. I do also want to make a, a final plug um, for the book, The Complete Darkness 2017. This is a book that um, uh, is we publish every year. Uh, and that is a recap of the Minnesota United season. It has stuff that you just can't get anywhere else. Literally, we have tables of stats. Um, we have a, you know a thirty-page analytics piece that we talked about on last week's podcast with Dave Ladig. Uh, we've got a profile of Amos McGee, who um, literally just no one has ever written about him. So uh, things like that um, that I, I think are really valuable. I love doing this. Is my favorite project. Um, and so uh, please go buy that at bylinepress.com. You can also find it at 55.1. Um, and thank you again. Here is this uh, interview. Please do check out, go check out NISA, go check out Cutting Edge Capital and what they're doing. And, um, you know, look at that NPSL team around you and and talk to them. And, and this isn't something that um, should be easy for lots of teams to do, but there are lots of teams out there um, who, I, you know, there are markets where, this could really work, and I think that it could provide something really cool and community-based. So uh, without further ado, we'll listen to Big Quarters, and then here's Peter Wilt and Kim Arnone.
I am pleased to be joined by uh, by both Kim Arnone from Cutting Edge Capital and Peter Wilt of the National Independent Soccer Association, or NISA uh, for short. Um, thank you both for, for coming on the, the podcast. It's, it's great to speak with you both. Thanks, Les. Uh, Thanks, uh, Les. Good to be talking to you again. Yeah, Peter, you and I have known each other for, for quite a long time, and, and I've always been uh, a, a big uh, fan of, of yours uh, just in terms of being able to find um, new ways to do soccer, uh, which is something obviously uh, I, I love quite a bit. And I'm, I'm wondering first if, if one of you can kind of tell me what's the history of the partnership. Um, either I, I know, Peter, you've been involved with, with Cutting Edge Capital in the past, but how did this come together and what's the mutual interest for, for uh, Cutting Edge Capital and NISA and, and you, Peter, as well? Well, uh, personally and through NISA, we've been exploring uh, community equity ownership uh, for the past couple of years. Uh, Chicago NESL is where uh, my partner Jack Cummins and I uh, first explored it. Uh, but I've been wanting to do this for even longer than it's been legally allowable. And so we've wanted to do it. And in the course of working with Chattanooga FC, the NPSL team that uh, uh, we are working with to join NISA, they connected with Cutting Edge Capital and introduced us relatively recently. And it's all come together rather quickly because of our mutual interests. And I can let uh, Kim talk about the Chattanooga connection a little bit more. Right. We um, we were introduced to a, they had a strong interest in fan ownership and our specialty at Cutting Edge is uh, community ownership strategies. And uh, once we started talking to uh, Tim Kelly and Sean Murphy at Chattanooga, we found that it was a great fit. And they then turned around and introduced us to Peter so that we could take these ideas and, and uh, put together an initiative that might be able to be used by a lot more teams um, across the divisions that Peter is is working on now. And for Cutting Edge Capital, you know, a lot of a lot of what you do seems to be agricultural and energy type clients and helping them raise capital, develop ownership structures. Where does soccer fit into this? Oh, it's a it's a great fit. Um, really, our mission is to um, open up equity investing to um, broad um, community-owned and partner-in-whole initiatives um, really take on the strength of the place that they reside. Um, and we like the economic ideas about people investing in what they, what they love and what they know, uh, what they're able to get a, a financial return on investment on, but also those intangible returns about uh, with soccer in particular would be that that connectedness that fan appreciation of of the team and the the way that fans are connected to their to their local team we thought it was a a perfect synergy um with us all of our clients really do um consider themselves sort of impact uh businesses in some way shape or form and and I think soccer the the NISA league fits exactly into that with their commitment to fan ownership and um, I, I, I really want, I'm excited to actually go into some of the, the weeds of, of how that works because, um, you know, Peter said he's been interested in this for a long time. I've been 
uh, as well, um, being a, a not very good businessman or, or knowing very little about it, obsessed with the idea and with my lack of knowledge about it. So, but bef- before I, I get there, I want to ask Peter. I want to ask you a question uh, about just the crazy year for you and for lower division soccer, um, because. When uh, NISA was first announced, it was announced as a kind of a, a bridge between the semi-pro or amateur leagues of the NPSL and the fully professional leagues in USL, NASL. Um, and the plan was to eventually have promotion and relegation between NISA and NASL. Obviously, <laughs> obviously 2017 was crazy uh, in terms of that type of plan. Uh, so what does 2018, how are you adjusting? What does 2018 look like just in the immediate future? And then, you know, what is it, what do you hope it looks like uh, at the end of the year? I think 2017 was the creation of the vision. And 2018, we anticipate, will be the implementation of the plan. Uh, the vision was, as you said, to create a league that would link the uh, second division NESL with the top amateur league, the NPSL, and stop them from being an island league where they're essentially irrelevant except for their own markets and their own teams. We wanted to give relevance beyond that. And that vision uh, has been challenging to implement uh, in no small part because of all the moving parts in the soccer landscape including the sanctioning challenges for the NASL and the growth of USL. Uh, But as the process has gone on, I think those challenges have actually resulted in a better plan. We've tweaked our model along the way, and tweak might be a a, a kind word. Uh, We've changed the entry terms, uh, the territorial rules, the league dues, and now this ownership model. And so now I think we have the right pieces in play. I think the the vision and the plan is now there. It's attracting significant interest in just this last two to three weeks since the holidays. And I think it's a result of those changes we've made, including the community ownership initiative. And so now 2018 is rolling it out, getting everybody that's interested in this model on the same page, working together, and another metaphor, I guess, rowing in the same direction. Uh, so I, 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 during this 15-month process, really, it started at a meeting in the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan uh, two Novembers ago with the leadership of NPSL and NESL. During the 15 months, I've never been as excited, as optimistic as I am right now. And I think uh, the next couple of weeks will be... Uh, very positive in terms of being able to ex- start the execution of the plan. And so you um, you're hoping then, uh, what will that execution look like? When 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 are we looking at a launch? And what what uh, how big of a league? What what, what is that going to look like? At least uh, I yeah you know it's still to be ter- determined. So okay. big caveat there, but I believe as we sit here today, there's a very good chance for a fall. 2018 launch after the World Cup uh, with a good critical mass of teams. I'm trying to avoid putting a specific number there. And then follow it up in the spring with uh, additional teams that will be able to make us uh, go forward 
in, in a really positive direction for what ostensibly would be a Division Three, although I'm not ruling out even a provisional Division Two. Along with, as we've talked about, uh, Division Four uh, that would likely launch in the spring of 2019. Um. Well, I I'm, there's <laughs> I want to I want to um I do want to get back to the the community partnership, but let me just uh, ask you a, a few questions on this. Uh, first, then, uh, there's a there's another um, league that is going to be pushing its kickoff back to the fall of 2018. Uh, is there a chance that the New York Cosmos is in NISA? Has there been any conversation uh, about uh, if if something goes wrong with NASL? Uh, there's always a chance, I suppose, but uh, at this point, there has not been any direct communication. Okay. Um. Well, let's uh, l- l- let me move back to to this um, community ownership stuff. Uh, I am very excited to hear more from you in, in the future as, as NISA comes up. So, um, but um, I- I'm curious uh, from from both of you to hear what is the what's the need that is uh, being met by cr- by creating this kind of not just creating but um, creating a model, I guess, for uh, fan ownership structures or just um, uh, it, it's not um, crowdfunding uh, teams, but it is kind of using the, that kind of crowdfunding type model of having a lot of equity ownership owners. Yeah, well, so, uh, sports are tribal uh, at its core, and the teams themselves, the athletes, are representing the fans, the community. And to extend that so that it's more than a virtual connection so that the fans are vested in the teams in a very real way, extends or deepens that commitment, that connection. And Ken, maybe you want to talk about how that's relatable in, in other products you know, beyond soccer. Right. I think that that, um, that same concept works with a, with a lot of our clients who have built up existing customer or client or supporter bases um, that energizing that base to become investors uh, does a couple of things uh, for the for the in this case the team or for in in, in another example for a company um, having those those folks be invested in your success makes them the best ambassadors for your product or service or in this case a team. Um, and that connection, again, as Peter was saying, gets deeper and deeper. And there's the potential for some monetary return on investment. But there's also uh, potential to to play a role as an owner. And each team, um, as we go through the details of what this might look like, each team can adjust how its fans participate based on their own team personality or their market, their business plan, or what their fans sit in. Um, and this model gives them a lot of leeway to find the best pathway for that fan engagement. Yeah, let's let's then dig into some of those details. Um, what we're talking about with this uh, with this type of um, raising of capital is that th- there's a and you can correct me uh, with these details, but um, that basically teams or companies are able to raise about a million a, a cap of a million a year. Um, and it's it's opened up to usually in an investment like this or in the past it used to be you had to be a certain type of investor right you have to have you have to make more than two hundred thousand dollars a year and there's a lot of other caveats there but this is now you know uh, 
John whatever can uh, you know who makes seventy thousand dollars a year is able to invest two thousand dollars or something in owning a team. Um, so what will that? Uh, how far does one million dollars go? What, what what will that look like for a company that is a team? Well, uh, it's. I think the lower the division, the more impactful it can have financially, right? Uh, the you know the barrier to entry, the budget point for uh, division three and four teams is very reasonable. And so, if we can raise you know fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars, that can serve as the seed capital to launch the team. Uh, as the higher divisions, you know, division two, or certainly division one, the financial impact of a, a raise of this magnitude is really not the reason to do it um, because your you know the value of the team the valuation of the team overall is is going to be in the millions and millions and millions of dollars and the budgets are going to be uh, such that raising 50 grand is uh, if it's a first division team is a, a drop in the ocean. Uh, but for these lower division teams, it's real. The 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 financial impact is, is real. And then, more importantly, I think is the residual benefit. Um, most teams will probably have some form of season ticket connection to the investment. And regardless, you're going to have 200, 500, a thousand, three thousand people shareholders that will now be season ticket holders that will give a foundation financially to the team that uh, they'll have that as a basis uh, to build off of. And then you have the emotional part, as Kim talked about, where these 500,000, 3,000 shareholders will feel vested in the team, and it carries over emotionally throughout the community to the people who own shares of the team or do not own shares of the team. I live in Wisconsin. I'm a Green Bay Packer fan. I'm not one of those people fortunate enough to be a shareholder in the Green Bay Packers, but the ethos of that team, the community nature of it, makes me feel like I'm an owner of the Green Bay Packers. And I think that's going to be another uh, perhaps intangible benefit to the fan ownership initiative. The um, If I remember correctly as well, the, the kind of minimum buy-in uh, or way that you'll structure this is that uh, it would be 10% of a team, right? It, it may be 100% of a team is, is run by this or, or whatever, but it's 10%. Is that is that correct? Am I getting that number right? We're, we're looking at it at 10%. Uh, U.S. soccer has restrictions on their um, professional league standards that says there must be a single uh, individual investor who controls the team and has 35% or more of ownership, Okay. which I mean, the math means 65% is a maximum right now uh, that the public could own. But um, if, if then I, I can do my bad math uh, here and, and then say, I mean, that, that means we're talking about a, a if 10% and you raise $1 million and that is 10%, then, then the kind of, uh, biggest size we're talking about is is a uh, $10 million valuation, is that at, at first? Which I... uh, please remember, though, Wes, that it's $1 million per 12 months. 
you could stagger it in right. three tranches or four or five That's true. and raise five million dollars over five years. So I guess I guess where I was going with that is I, I can we I do want to talk about things like Chattanooga and, and these places, but are we talking about uh, that this is a structure that you could see going into, um, you know, let's say, let's say something like Fort Lauderdale Strikers, right? Last year, Fort Lauderdale Strikers uh, c- collapsed. Um, would we see a a kind of bigger traditional second division team be able to restructure? With uh, and you know maybe they'd have to drop down to the to to Nisa or to to Division Three, but but be able to to do that level of um, uh, uh, that size of a team as opposed to kind of the the um, amateur semi pros that are making that first step up to uh, some type of pro. Yes, I think it's absolutely applicable for uh, any of the lower division levels whether it is Division two, three, or 4, whether it's an existing team or a new team. Uh, my earlier point about the impact on the financially on the lower division is just a relative impact. Uh, it can have a, a big impact on the second division team, uh, but just percentage-wise, obviously, it'd be different. Kim, let me ask you a, a right, few... Oh, sorry. Do you mind if I make a comment on that? Please, yeah. Wes? Sure. So, um... When we were designing a, an initiative that is a little bit like a, a plug-and-play to get this initiative off the ground, we settled on a particular regulatory strategy, which is Regulation Crowdfund or Reg CF. And that is the only pathway that's really limited to a million dollars in 12 months. There are a couple of other ways under existing law and regulations to do community that are both public and a broader uh, type of investor, meaning not limited, as you were mentioning earlier, to only the super high net worth folks, but open to regular folks as well. Um, And so there are other pathways that Cutting Edge uses for uh, in different situations depending. And some of them do not have the same type of limits that the Reg CF does. So, for example, there's another... uh, approach that would have a limit of $5 million in a 12-month period. And then there's a, a, a single-state approach. If you're limiting your, your raise to a single state, it would be registered in that state, and it, and it wouldn't have an upper limit. Hmm. So there are a number of existing pathways that would allow teams or any other kind of business to do uh, to open themselves up for community ownership. And, and by that, again, I mean that you can have non-accredited or regular network folks um, join in in the in the ownership. So depending on the needs of the teams uh, and the markets and where they are, um, we can choose different uh, different approaches. So we're talking about a different approach, for example, with with the Chattanooga Football Club rather than the Reg CF. But for many of the teams that are just getting started or are transitioning in some way, this approach simple, um, uh, not too expensive, uh, and it was the best approach that Nisa and, and Cutting Edge uh, came up with uh, for to launch the initiative. Sure, sure. But we do have other options. And so, you know, one of the one of the elephants in the room uh, for any talk about ownership of, of clubs is, um, and, and Peter, obviously, you know this very well. Uh, there's a lot of uh, you lose a lot of money 
in uh, lower division soccer, right? Everyone's losing money uh, all over the place. And so um, what does that look like for need the following year, right? Um, if you're going to be losing $500,000 a year or a million dollars a year, um, do you do you just do these kind of owners have a capital call every year or how is that how does that work? I think and Kim can address the logistics of it, but I think the beauty of this fan ownership initiative is that it can also be tailored for specific uses. I believe the capital raise can be used to raise funds to improve the facility, to expand the team budget, um, to provide better quality of concessions, uh, something like that. And so in ensuing years when there's a, a need for additional funds or if it's just to keep the team afloat, I believe that's another opportunity that uh, could be done. Uh, but it also would have the board's decision of, uh, you know, how is that money raised? Is it raised from the um, uh, lead investor, or is it opened up to, to new investors? Can you, I'm sure, have a, a better idea of the legalities of that? Right. Um, subsequent raises can be done in, in sort of more traditional ways if there is an appetite for a private placement into these clubs as they grow. So the, that all of the... Um, the capital wouldn't necessarily be coming from community. It, it would be part of a larger capital stack um, for most teams. And it would, I think that that would, will probably vary, and Peter may have more thoughts on this, but would vary depending on the division and, and where the team is in its business plan, how new it is or how long it's been, um, been uh, working towards a, um, a professional standing. So it would depend. Um, but you're right. It's, it's an investment. So everybody who, and I, I think this is what you're getting to, everybody who chooses to invest knows that and should know, and the disclosures will be, that these kind of disclosures will be included. But, you know, you, you are putting your investment at risk as with any investment. Um, and there are risks particular to uh, sports teams that are different from if you're in, investing in another type of company. Um, my understanding is, and again, we haven't finalized any terms with any team, but I think teams will be looking at other ways um, to provide some um, intangible benefits to uh, additional things like discounts on on tickets or merchandise um, and ways that both benefit the, the fans and also um, encourage additional revenue streams for the, for the club. So um, while the teams are building up towards profitability, there are other benefits that fan ownership uh, would would receive, and I know that some teams are talking about uh, seats on the board for the you know for the collective fan ownership or certain veto rights. There are a lot of ways in which um, fans um, have other benefits besides uh, an, an immediate return on investment. Um, are, are these shares that are transferable? Uh, can I could I? Uh, invest and then sell that to another person, or how how does that part work? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, there, these types of shares, um, there are there are limitations on transfer, um, and they ha- so it has to comply with uh, regulations in order to transfer to a new owner. 
Um, the bigger question is, is that there really isn't right now a secondary market for trading of shares that um, that are issued in Reg CF offerings um, right out of the gate. Although I know that there that different entities are looking into a secondary trading market for that. Okay. So it is harder. Typically, um, we look at other options for redemption back to the company on certain terms so that there is an option for liquidity for um, for in- investors, particularly in a preferred type of equity. But again, you know, each team is going to be able to decide how that might work. But for other clients, we've done things like uh, you know, that after a certain number of years holding the shares that uh, a shareholder may request a redemption at a specified price for the share and and redeem it back to the company. And the company has leeway in whether or not it has to uh, has to redeem that or whether it has discretion to to uh, respond to the redemption request. But that does give some liquidity. OK. And, and so um, maybe. Uh... Paint me a picture of of what would this uh, look like in action with a club? Like uh, you've you've mentioned a few different options there, but what would um, what are the different ways that people are you or other uh, clubs are starting to imagine what it would what uh, having fan ownership or, or people many people owning them would look like? Well, I can talk about what uh, one example that. Um, we were looking at in Chicago with the NASL project, and that was to sell up to 3,000 shares over three years at $500 a share plus a season ticket. And uh, that would uh, provide the season ticket privilege, um, access privileges to various team events, it would provide the discounts, as Kim mentioned, for merchandise and uh, game day concessions, and the opportunity to vote on issues. Uh, they would be represented, in that case, by a board that would have a single representative on the team's board that would vote for them. And that vote would be proportional of the seven board members, so one of seven, but for certain issues, as Kim mentioned, they would have veto rights, and that would be on certain issues that are really important to fans, like making sure the team doesn't leave the city, that uh, the, the board could veto that, that um, the color, the team colors, or the name of the team could not be changed without the fan. Uh, support. Kim, have have uh, as you've talked to um, to clubs, have have they been exploring various uh, other options? Primarily, what Peter mentioned um, is uh, participatory rights in some form or another, whether it's board or other type of uh, of, of voting and uh, and or veto rights, and then other other perks that kind of go along with the with the investment. And it kind of depends on the the level of um, level of investment by the fans, um, different perks would attach at different levels of investment. That's a, another structure that I understand that teams are looking at. So, if you're investing a, a smaller amount, you might have get a a, a special uh, edition jersey, and if you're investing a higher amount, it might come with tickets and and other things. So it's progressive depending on investment. 
And so what has the response been like so far? Uh, you mentioned, you know, at least one club, Club Chattanooga. Uh, how, how many clubs have, have reached out? I mean, you just sent out this uh, press release last week, and so I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Yeah, the announcement was on Saturday, Wes, and I've been contacted by uh, half a dozen people. Uh, a few existing teams and a few markets that are looking to start a brand-new team. We've also been contacted by two organizations, nonprofits, that represent fan ownership groups. Um, you may be familiar with Supporters Direct, mm -hmm. which is a UK organization that uh, that represents supporters trust in in England and in Europe as well. And then we were also contacted by the Fan Ownership Alliance which is an American version of Supporters Direct. And they represent the 10 existing fan-owned teams in the United States now, uh, nine of which are amateur teams, and the 10th is the Seattle Sounders B team. Uh, so it's, the reaction has been fantastic, um, and I think it's only going to grow. Once we have a model... Uh, two or three teams that have taken this and are running with it, it has the potential to explode because it's something that can benefit not only uh, new teams that haven't even started yet, but an existing team that wants to extend its relationship with its fans and its community. And that pertains to virtually every soccer team in America. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that this, um, for, you know, for listeners um, thinking about this in MLS uh, situations, uh, MLS has now, I think, obviously gotten way bigger than this even then. But there is kind of, um, uh, there's no ability to do this in MLS because of just the way they structure ownership, right? The, the league owns these things and you don't, um, and the league is not going to open itself up to uh, to to an ownership situation like this. But um, I wonder, have you um, spoken, Peter or Kim, have you, have you spoken to uh, uh, clubs that are uh, kind of bigger than, the, than what we're talking about with uh, Chattanooga in the kind of uh, already in the um, tier, uh, second tier? Yes, I've talked to representatives uh, from second division team, and uh, some of the NISA wannabe teams. Um, I've also spoken to a former MLS employee about it, uh, and it's been universally praised. Uh, they recognize that it's not always the simplest thing to pull off, uh, but that's, I think, the beauty of the support from Cutting Edge is that it's a white-label platform that makes this extremely affordable to do and extremely efficient to do. And I think your point about MLS is interesting. I think the restriction there is, as you said, it's the corporate structure that prevents them from doing it, not necessarily the fact that the first division and they have budgets of $20 million or more a year. Uh, I think this model can and should work with first division teams. And if NISA 
fulfills its, its vision and its plan and someday has a first division component, by all means, there should be uh, fan-owned teams in that first division. And so um, let me just uh, come back to, to Nisa a little bit then, just to, to ask about w- what's happening there. Um, you you said that you don't have a you you think that um things may happen uh, so that there could be a fall launch here, um, is that is that going to be a fall launch with six teams with twelve teams? Could I mean, what what? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Could be. Yeah, I was vague earlier for that reason. <laughs> right. We don't know. We'll, yeah. we'll know in a couple of weeks. You, uh, I would say it'd be at least six. You think? And it could be as many as twelve. And so Luckily, it'll be somewhere in between. A couple of weeks. Um, what do you? What what obstacles are there right now for you um, locking in and trying to make decisions about your future? What do you run? What do you? I mean, well, we yeah. we need to be sanctioned, and uh, the next U.S. Soccer Board meeting, of course, is February eighth to tenth in Orlando, and uh, the challenge is getting uh, everyone on the same page and ready to apply and be committed to moving forward uh, in time to uh, be vetted and be sanctioned by U.S. soccer in that time frame. Yeah. And, and, and so um, is there is there a problem with, are you, is, there is a potential that it won't happen until 2019. Are, are you going to be able to, is that going to be an extra problem or you're just anxious to kind of get things going and at least get momentum? There is. Uh, certainly teams that are anxious to get on the field in 2018. Yeah. And if it's delayed to 2019, with certain teams, it will be problematic. Uh, but for other teams, 2019 is actually a better timeline. Yeah. Uh, so over the next couple of weeks, we'll see where it shakes out. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on. I'm very excited about this. And, uh, you know, Peter, do um, keep me in mind, and and we should talk soon again about how things are developing. Um, uh, Thank you both for uh, kind of finding new ways to make soccer succeed here. I'm uh, very excited when I hear new ideas like this. I appreciate it, Wes. And we're looking for people in markets throughout the country that are willing to be the local coordinators uh, for their own teams. And it can be folks that will end up representing the club or folks that will end up uh, representing uh, the fans. And they can check out the Cutting Edge website or the NISA website for more information. Great. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Wes.